Let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, where we're going to continue our study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You'll find your place in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. And we're going to read to the end of chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through the end of chapter 3. Let me say a few words before we read this text. The most valuable things in life are those things which last. Consider gold, for example. For thousands of years, it has stored value efficiently and effectively so that its holder can use it when needed. Put it in the fire and it will not be destroyed. It may even increase in value. Cut it in pieces, still its value is not harmed. It is only more easily shared by others. Mix it with something else, even, and it is not thereby ruined, for it can always be purified again. There is a reason why gold is so valuable. It is not only rare, it is enduring. But I'm not really wanting to speak to you about the merits or demerits of gold as an investment. Rather, I want you to see in the illustration something of much greater worth. I doubt there's much gold in this room, maybe a few items of jewelry. But there is in this room a treasure of such glory, a crown of surpassing worth, that it makes the finest gold and greatest treasure look like a mere trifle. For even gold will not endure forever. But as I look at you all, I see men and women made in God's image, made for God's glory, redeemed by His grace, held fast by His power, and destined for eternity. In short, I see a people whom the Lord treasures. And I want you to see that we ought to think of one another in this way. I want you to see how this should change the way that we live together. It's not my only aim tonight. In fact, my goal is to reframe your perspectives even more broadly than that. Not only do I want to encourage you to let the gospel shape your values, I also want to encourage you to let the gospel shape your response and your perspective on everything that we face in this life. So in the text tonight, we're going to see that the gospel encourages us, as we look at the example of Paul, to adopt values that are shaped by God's priorities, to live with fearless realism in the face of adversity, to find joyful comfort in the progress of the gospel, and to pray accordingly with gratitude and faith. So if you found your place, would you follow along with me in 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 17 as I read to the end of chapter 3. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy? or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, We kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. 
But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Father in heaven, we do pray, O Lord, that you would work through your word in our hearts and in our minds tonight to reframe our perspectives as we observe the example of Paul, his priorities, his desires, his affections, his concerns. May we learn from his example. May we learn to trust you in all things, to love what you love, to love whom you love, and to live fearlessly, courageously, with our full and steadfast hope in your work and in your power and in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to remind you, we've talked in recent weeks about the context of this letter as we've considered Paul's second missionary journey. And I do want to briefly go back over that once more from another perspective. So to uh, frame the context from which Paul is writing these words. If we could join up with Paul in Corinth while he waited for Timothy, we might be forgiven for thinking his second missionary journey had been a great failure. Nothing had gone according to plan, and from a human perspective, everything seemed to be falling apart. Right from the start, Paul and Barnabas had resolved to go to the cities they had visited before, to Cyprus, to Antioch and Pisidia, to Lystra and to Iconium, in order to see their progress. We see that in Acts 15.36. But right away, things ceased to go according to plan. Paul and Barnabas could not agree as to whether they should take John Mark with them. And so they split, with Barnabas taking John Mark to Cyprus and Paul going through Asia, that is modern-day Turkey, with Silas. He came to Derbe and to Lystra, and there Timothy joined them. They delivered to the church a decision that had been made by the apostles in Jerusalem regarding circumcision and whether it was required for the Gentiles. All seemed to be going well. It seemed, as Luke records in Acts 16.5, as we read, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And so they decided that they would travel onward throughout Asia to spread the gospel further. And yet, God redirected them. He rerouted them in a new direction. You see, in Acts 16, verses 6 through 10, we read about Paul and Silas and Timothy. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, 
And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Twice the Spirit prevented Paul from going throughout Turkey, throughout Asia, to to spread the gospel. He passed straight through Central Asia, Phrygia and Galatia, and when he got to the western coast, he decided he wanted to go up to Bithynia, which is in the north of that land, on the southern coast of the Black Sea. But God wouldn't, would not allow him to go there either. And then, in that vision in the night, he has a dream of a man from Macedonia who says, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so he and Silas and Timothy and Luke, seemingly with them, as he writes these words and acts, decided that God was calling them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. And that's when they came to Philippi, and then afterward to Thessalonica, and afterward to Berea. Now, in the past weeks, we've spoken at length of what Paul encountered in Macedonia as he traveled to these three cities. In each town, a few believed, like Lydia and the Philippian jailer, Jason and Thessalonica, and the Jews of Berea. Nevertheless, he had been forced out of each town by the city leaders and riotous crowds. He had been beaten, he had been imprisoned, he had been insulted and treated shamefully. So finally, he was chased away about 140 miles south to Athens, and then on to Corinth, where he arrived and in his own words described his arrival as, one, as an arrival that was in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Before he moved on to Corinth, though, he decided that Timothy should leave him and Silas alone, that Timothy should go back to the Thessalonians and to find out how it was going with them. We can begin to piece together more of the picture as we uh, reflect on what we've read in this passage in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3. Paul is concerned that amidst all of their trials, amidst all of their difficulties, amidst the persecution that they have faced, he is concerned that these Thessalonians won't hold fast, that they will, in the midst of persecution, stop believing, stop holding fast to the gospel, that those who were Jewish would return to the synagogue and their old way of life, and those who were Gentiles would be forced to abandon the faith by their own neighbors as well, returning to paganism and emperor worship. And Paul tried again and again, as we read in this text, he tried again and again to get back to Thessalonica because he had only been able to spend a little bit of time with them. He was there in the city for three weeks preaching in the synagogue and then maybe a week, maybe two weeks, maybe a little bit of time after that, teaching in Jason's house, teaching the Christians there. But very quickly, he was forced out of town. And you can imagine the situation. These people have just become Christians. They don't hardly know anything. Paul wants to teach them. Paul wants to strengthen them. Paul wants to disciple them. But he's been prevented time and again from getting back to the Thessalonians. And he's concerned that amidst all that he is facing and all the challenges and struggles and trials that he is enduring, that they, in enduring the same things, will not hold fast. But as we paint this picture and we think about what was going on and the anxieties and the fears that Paul had, we ultimately see that this was all to show Paul and us that it was not his labor, 
or His presence that preserved the Thessalonians in faith. The Holy Spirit who directed His path all the way, who called Him into Macedonia, who brought believers to Him, people who would receive the gospel and become believers. The Holy Spirit is the one who preserves His people. The God who called Paul to Macedonia only to permit him to be driven away for a time is the God who creates a people for his own treasured possession. All who are in Christ are his workmanship. He will never cast us aside. That's the way that Paul encourages us through his own example in this letter to reframe our, expe our expectations, our hopes, our values in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we've considered this background and the context of Paul's letter, what I, want you to do what I want to do now is to look more closely at what Paul is, is setting before us. And I want to consider these, uh, these four uh, headings that I listed earlier, beginning with how the gospel should shape our values according to God's priorities. The gospel should shape our values according to God's priorities. Consider the way that Paul describes what had taken place in his life with the Thessalonians. In verse 17 through 20 of chapter 2, he wrote, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or, or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. In his desire to be with them, Paul feels as though he has been torn away. It's a word which literally can be used of being orphaned. Paul has no problem mixing metaphors. Sometimes he describes himself as a father to those people whom he shared the gospel with and discipled. Sometimes as a mother, sometimes as a brother. And in this case, he describes himself as one who has been orphaned. That's what he feels like in, in the way that he was separated from the Thessalonians, driven away from them. We were torn away from you, brothers. He relates to them as brothers as well. And this reflects the way in which he values them, the way in which this relationship has become quite precious to him. I had a friend one time who I would meet from uh, time to time. And at one point I was preparing to move to another city. And he very frankly took me aside and he said, I just want you to know, I probably will never speak to you again. He says, I don't want you to take it personally. I just don't keep up with people I don't see day to day. And I actually appreciated his honesty and frankness. There are some people who we meet for a time and we move on with our lives. And then there are some people who are very dear to us and we maintain contact with them over the years, even over great distances. But what I want you to see here is that Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians, even though it was only established in a very short time, was not like that friendship that I had that lasted for only a short time. He had a deep yearning to be with them. He loved them intensely. He strived again and again to get back to them so that he might encourage them and he might strengthen them. In fact, he describes the way he had been separated from them as one of a separation of person, but not a separation in heart. His heart was with them, even if he was personally far apart. Why did Paul want to be with them? Why, when he could find no way to return, did he send Timothy back to strengthen them and report back? Because 
Paul valued them the way that God values his people. Paul described the Thessalonians as our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. He counted them as his glory and joy. What did Paul mean by this? Paul speaks often with similar language, so it may be helpful if we consider similar passages. Certainly he discourages boasting on the basis of any kind of good works. That's not what he means here. For example, in Romans 3.27, he asks, What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. But in that context, Paul is speaking about the kind of boasting where a person boasts of his good deeds, boasts of his obedience to the law of God, and seems to think that in that obedience, in that law-keeping, he can somehow be righteous before God. Paul makes clear through the first three chapters of Romans that there is no cause for boasting in this, for none of us can be so righteous to have any kind of merit before a holy God. But that's not the kind of boasting that Paul is speaking about here. Here he's speaking about a different kind of boasting, one he speaks about later in Romans, in Romans chapter 15. In Romans 15, verses 14 through 19, we read these words, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder Because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be boastful of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Notice that Paul describes his ministry in such a way that all the glory and credit is ultimately due to God. And notice that he describes the fruit of his ministry, the salvation of the Gentiles, as an acceptable offering to God. He has reason to be boastful, he says, not because of anything he's done, not because of anything in him, but because of what Christ Jesus has done through him in the power of the Spirit. God accomplished something extraordinary through Paul in causing so many churches to be planted. But Paul knew that this ultimately was God's work through him. Therefore, his final boast was in Christ, and his only offering was an offering enabled by God. It was an offering that was sanctified, that is to be made holy by the Holy Spirit. And the accomplishment was the work of Christ. In his other letters, Paul frequently speaks to the churches in the same way. He frequently boasts of the Corinthians and God's grace to them. They are his pride and joy. Likewise, he boasts to the Philippians with these words, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We should understand texts like this one in 1 Thessalonians 2 in much the same light. It's not that Paul sees the Thessalonians as a means to an end, as if he can boast before Christ that he won a bunch of nameless converts for whom he really cares nothing. He does not care primarily for his own glory. He calls them his crown, not in the sense of a crown a king would wear, but in the sense of the laurel wreath 
that a runner would receive as a prize for winning a race. It's the word in Greek, Stephanos, the word we get the name Stephen from. It's the kind of crown someone would win after winning a race. But notice they are not a means to a crown. They are the crown. They are the thing he treasures and the offering that is acceptable to God. That is, just as he values them, so also and much more, God values them. This week, I spent some time in my devotions reading uh, in the book of Jeremiah, and I was struck by a verse in Jeremiah 13, 11. There, in the context of Jeremiah, God told the prophet to do uh, this, this strange act, this sign act, where he would take an undergarment, a loincloth, and, and uh, go and bury it next to the Euphrates River, and then come back and find that it was spoiled. And at the end of that, then God gives Jeremiah the interpretation of what he's doing. And he says this in verse 11 of Jeremiah 13, For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen. What struck me is that last phrase, God brought Israel close to him, as an undergarment, as, as close it can be, to a man. So too, God dwelt in their presence. He brought them close that they might be, what? A name, a people, a name, a praise, and a glory for Him, a treasure. And He made His glory dwell in their midst. Of course, God sent Jeremiah to lament the fact that Israel failed to rightly reflect that privileged position. But later He spoke in this way, in Jeremiah chapter 33, He spoke in this way about what he would do in the days to come. Behold, I will bring to, he's talking about the city of his people, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me, and this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. God spoke of a day when through His redeeming work, He would once again make them to be a people, a name, a praise, a joy. We might even say a boast. Surely we can say a treasure. A treasure for his own possession. We cannot now, nor am I prepared to go into a detailed interpretation of this text. Suffice it to say that I think Jeremiah was prophesying of the future true Israel that includes both Jew and Gentile in the one people of God. The point, however, for which I wish to contend tonight is simply to note the way God spoke of what He would do for His people by forgiving their sins and bringing them back into a right relationship with Him. He would make them to be for Him a name, a praise, and a glory for Himself. And this privilege would be for their everlasting good. When Paul thought of the Thessalonians, indeed when he thought of the Christians he had taught in every one of the churches, he thought of them in the very same way. They were precious to God, and they were precious to Him. They were loved by God, and they were loved by Him. So He longed for them. He longed to build them up. He longed to be with them and to encourage and strengthen them in every way. 
And we ought to think in the same way of one another. You are a treasure to the Lord if you are found in Christ, and not because of anything that is in you, but because of what God makes of you. And so, we should also treasure one another, love one another, the way that we see Paul demonstrating such longing and love for the Thessalonians. But Paul also has a perspective that we could describe as fearless realism in the face of adversity. Fearless realism in the face of adversity. It's not just a love and a longing to be with the Thessalonians, but he understands the reality of his situation and their situation. He writes in the midst of opposition, and ultimately he recognizes that that opposition for what it is, it's the work of the evil one who opposes God's people. From the very beginning of Scripture, we see that this is Satan's work. God declared that there would be an enduring hatred between the people of God and the evil one. When he said to the serpent in the garden, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Ultimately in those words, Genesis 3.15 is pointing forward to Christ and what he would do to the serpent, to Satan. But he also speaks, Moses also writes in Genesis 3, of an enduring conflict that will exist between the evil one and the people of faith. That hatred, that enmity, manifests itself in various ways throughout the biblical story. Jesus told, for example, in John 8, He told those who opposed Him that they were of their father the devil, in John 8, 44-47. And why? Because they imitated His character by opposing Jesus with lies and murderous intent. The Apostle John said very much the same about Cain, who killed Abel, because Abel's deeds were righteous. In 1 John chapter 3, he said that, Cain was of the evil one, and from this he concluded that Christians should also be unsurprised when the world opposes us. There is an invisible enemy of God and his people. He is real, and his name is Satan. His primary weapons are violence and deceit. He disguises himself even as an angel of light, as we read in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. And he works through those who hate God's word and his ways, those whom Scripture recognizes as his children by virtue of their character. Paul was prevented from returning to Thessalonica again and again. We know some of the reasons, like the opposition that drove him south in the first place. But other factors are unknown to us, and it is not necessary to know for certain what they are. But Paul recognized that it was Satan, ultimately, who hindered him from returning to the Thessalonians. And he also feared that Satan, the tempter, might tempt them to abandon their faith, rendering his labor in vain. In this particular case, we can put together another picture of Satan's strategy that w- will encourage us, I think, as we face the same things. On the one hand, there was the threat of violence and persecution of different kinds. The Thessalonian Christians endured such trials almost immediately upon coming to Christ. This is Satan's stick. On the other hand, the devil's carrot is a false offer that all this suffering can be avoided. Aware of his guile and power, however, we must resist these temptations. Paul worried that in the Thessalonians' lives that Satan might achieve his aim. Even when he was with the Thessalonians, he expressed these worries by warning them again and again that we are destined for such things. 
We can hear echoes of the words of our Lord to his disciples from the upper room as he faced the cross. He warned them ahead of time that they would have tribulation in the world. He warned them that the world would hate them. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In fact, we see in the fulfillment of Paul's words a proof of his message, a proof of its truth, that is, that should encourage us to hold fast even amidst these trials. He reminded them, saying, For when we were with you, this is verse 4 of chapter 3, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. The devil intends persecution and trial to cause us to turn from the gospel. But Paul turns it around as a proof that the gospel is true. If God's word about coming trials prove true, will not his promises about everlasting joy also prove true? This is the logic by which we evaluate the truth of so much biblical testimony. It's a logic, as I have said many times, that we can trace all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 when Moses gave the people of Israel instructions for evaluating true prophets and false prophets. The true prophets are the ones whose word comes true. Here Paul told them ahead of time, we will face affliction. We will face these difficulties. It's come to pass, just as you know. And this is a proof that all that God spoke to them through Paul would also certainly come true. That even if they were to face these trials for a time, their heavenly hope was sure. In our day, there are many who contend that the Christian life is about living abundantly now. They tell us that we should expect health and wealth and prosperity of every kind. They parade their own health and wealth as a proof. For those who do not experience such things, they tell us that there is some deficiency in our faith. Its quality or its degree is insufficient. Yet their word is disproved because it is inconsistent with God's word. And it simply does not come true. It is only one more deception in the devil's arsenal. I, I am unable to offer you that kind of comfort. If I could, I would. Your life in the present may not be so wonderful, and I cannot assure you that Jesus will make it all better here and now. What I can do is urge you to expand your perspective, to look beyond your present reality to the coming of our Lord, and face the present with fearless realism. On the day when He comes, the dead will be raised, and He will stand as judge of the living and the dead. Those who trust Him will enter into everlasting life. From that day forward, we will experience the fullness and abundance and joy that He offers forever and ever. But we must hold fast to His promises now. We must not be swayed by what may come our way. I don't know what will come our way. In our own lives, most of what we have faced could be categorized under the heading of deceits and subtlety rather than the heading of violent persecution. But we should not be surprised if we face the latter someday. I do not know how it may come or how intense it will be. I do know we should not be surprised by it. We should not be surprised if we should suffer a little now or in the future. And it will be a little thing, even if it costs us our very lives. See, I've told you beforehand, so that if it comes, when it comes, you will not be shaken. For Satan may be powerful, and his guile may be great, 
but he is no match for the Spirit of Almighty God. For that reason, Paul turns his attention in this letter from fearless realism in the face of adversity to joyful comfort in the progress of the gospel. What greater evidence of God's preserving work can there be than what he did in Thessalonica? Paul was there a short while, maybe four weeks as I've said, and yet these Christians are enduring. They face trials. Jason was forced, the, 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 the person who hosted this house church there, he was forced to pay a sum of money in order to put up security to show that this would not happen again. But it didn't matter. Their faith did not depend upon Paul, which is no slight against him or them. Whatever might have been lacking in their faith could only be supplied by Paul personally. We'll talk about what that might be in a minute. But they endured not because Paul was able to hold their hand or supply those lacking things. They endured because they stood fast in the Lord and because the Lord held them fast. This is the nature of the Christian life. Christ calls us to endure by keeping our eyes fixed upon Him, by maintaining our hope in the gospel, and by trusting that nothing can separate us from the God who loved us and gave Himself for us. And as He calls us to hold fast, He promises that He will surely hold us fast, as we often sing to one another. Moreover, as we see others enduring hardship and difficulty without losing their faith, we are comforted and encouraged to endure ourselves. As we see God holding others firm, we are encouraged to trust more firmly in our Lord as well. This is the logic that motivates Paul. The language he uses to describe Timothy's good report is the same he uses to describe his own preaching of the gospel. In Chapter 3, verses 6 through 7, he writes, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. He describes Timothy's good report as good news, as gospel. Timothy came as a, an evangelist, as it were, sharing this good news with Paul. Just as he went about preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, Timothy came back reporting the good news of their enduring faith. And Paul was comforted. Just as he went to comfort people in the knowledge of the grace that we have in Christ, he himself was comforted to see that God was preserving His people. It's the same language Paul uses to describe the preaching of the gospel as he preaches it. It's the same language that he uses to describe his exhortations and words of comfort that he brings with his gospel. Paul, who preached good news to the Thessalonians and longed to revisit them to comfort them, ultimately was the one who was comforted by their faith. Even in the midst of his own difficulties, even in the midst of his own trials, he found comfort in the progress of the gospel as he learned of their faith and their love and their steadfast hope. So what greater comfort can we know than that which we receive when we witness the Lord working? Sometimes there's a verse in Scripture, verses in Scripture stop me in my tracks. They drop my jaw to the floor, and I can't explain why. Verse 8 is something like that for me. 
Paul writes, for now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord. Some commentators take this to mean something like, now we can breathe easy because you are standing fast in the Lord. But I agree with Leon Morris that this rather robs the verse of its force. To be sure, the phrase is in a sense figurative. That is, Paul does not mean he was about to die, he was about to expire, but that this report saved him from death. No. But in another sense, Paul really does find his life, his reason to be, perhaps, in the work of the gospel and the faith of those whom he ministers to. In all his afflictions, in all his difficulties, he can say, now I live. If you're standing firm, he finds his life in their life. And so again, we come back to a point with which we began. For Paul, the Thessalonians are not a means to an end. The Christians in Thessalonica, like the Christians in Philippi and Corinth and the other churches, have become to him as his own life. As they hold fast, he finds life and strength and comfort in all the sufferings that he must endure. This too is a sign that Satan's designs cannot prevail. He may have hindered Paul. He may have tempted the Thessalonians. But their faith prevailed and Paul was comforted because it was the Lord who held them fast. And so we can likewise find joy and comfort as we see the progress of the gospel, even in the midst of many trials and difficulties in this life. And finally, a final perspective. We can go to our Lord with thanksgiving and faith as we make our requests known to Him. Because he ultimately is the one who works according to the counsel of his will. As we heard this morning and read together from Ephesians chapter 1, 11. Paul gave thanks to God as his only right and fitting. Even as he earnestly prayed to God night and day that God might make a way for him to return to Thessalonica. He thanked God for their faith. In no way did he give up in his desire to return to them. But he also realized that God had given him every reason for gratitude. The fruit of the gospel in the life of the Christian is an amazing thing. It's a miraculous thing. We customarily thank God for the ordinary things in our lives, and rightly so. We thank Him for our daily bread. We thank Him for our family, our church, and so many of the common graces that we receive. But the Christian thanks God in the midst of trials and difficulties as well. Not only when God relieves him of suffering, but in the midst of suffering, when God overpowers it with joy that we cannot explain. Joy because of the power of our God as He works to bring about the obedience of faith. This too is the nature of the Christian life. We have not seen Christ, but we believe in Him. We know His presence, though we cannot see His presence. So we rejoice with joy that we cannot fully express because of the work of our God in our hearts. As we see this attitude in others, we see what a treasure it is. A point I think that Peter expresses quite clearly and profoundly in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-9. through 9. Listen as I read these words that he wrote to other churches who had been confronted by trials and suffering as well. He said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now as with these Thessalonians, so with these Christians to whom Peter wrote, it is not some intrinsic quality that makes them so precious to God. It is God's gracious work to purify and preserve them. The trials are like the fire, and these Christians are like the gold, tested and preserved through the flame. This helps us to see why God would have it this way, as we think about this text from 1 Peter as well. That is, why did God design and ordain all this in such a way that Christians would have to endure hardship and difficulty and suffering? Why not just make it easy? Why not simply put Satan on a shorter leash? The answer is twofold and simple. For his glory and for our good. The result of this testing, as Peter has it, is that it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The idea is the same as what Paul speaks about when he writes about his crown of boasting at the coming of our Lord. That God's people endure with faith and love in the face of great hardship cannot be explained by anything but the great grace of our Lord and the power of Christ. That God's people rejoice in the midst of much hardship is likewise inexplicable except apart from God's gracious work. But it is a real joy. It is a real good that He produces in our life. Already, as we see His powerful work in our own lives and in one another, we know that joy and glory and we praise and thank our God accordingly. We thank Him and we express again our prayer to Him that He would continue to work mightily in others just as Paul prayed in these benedictory words. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. In the end, when Paul considered the Thessalonians, and as he gave thanks to God for the work that he was doing in their lives, he ultimately brought new requests to God to essentially do more of the same. Paul was not praying that God would merely relieve all of their suffering. He was not praying that God would line their pockets and fill their bank accounts. He was not praying that they might gain political power or that they might become more prominent or that their lives would be so abundantly blessed that everyone would look at them and say, how do I get what they have? No, he was praying for a different kind of abundance, one that was in line with what God was already doing. He was praying that God would make them increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as he himself, Silas and Timothy, had love for them. He was praying that God would establish them blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. He was praying with an eye on eternity. He was praying with the gospel of Jesus Christ in mind. He was praying with the hope that we all share. And he was thanking God that he was already doing this and praying, may you, O Lord, do more of the same. And so as we reflect on these perspectives that we've been given, we reflect on Paul's perspective and the way that he himself has even been 
challenged and changed by his experience with the Thessalonians. Let us be a people who value what God values. Let us be a people who are courageous in the face of adversity, facing our lives with realism. And yet, let us be a people who draw comfort and joy as we see God's work go forth, even against all opposition. Let us be a people who never cease to thank our Lord and to bring our requests that He might cause the gospel to yet go forth even more in our hearts, in our lives, and in our world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, O Lord, that you would so work in our lives. And we thank you, O Lord, for what you have done. As Paul wrote, and as we often feel, how can we thank you enough for all that you have done in our lives? Weak sinners as we are, yet you in your great grace called us to yourself to be your children, called us to, uh, into your family as adopted sons. Not that we deserved it, but that you in your great grace and as a demonstration of your great power did it for us so that we might become and be made into a treasure, a people for your own possession. How indeed, O oh Lord, can we thank you enough? May we never cease to praise you. May we never cease to thank you. And may we never cease to seek from you more of the same for ourselves and others. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.